My name is Jeremy Hetzel. I'm the Director of Student Ministries here at Family of Christ. Thanks for being here today. Um, it's good to be back. I recognize some faces. Uh, for those who don't know, I missed three Sundays in a row, which for a church worker is bad. <laughs> so, like, it's good to, like, see people here and recognize faces. We were in Honduras for two weeks um, with, with 12 students. It was a great trip. And then we had another team of students that was off in Dayton, Ohio. You'll hear about their experiences next week, so don't miss it. Uh, just as a reminder, we are in the book of James. Does everyone remember James? This is week six of James. And so I thought we'd start out today, as we discuss James, to share a quote from a church father about his thoughts on James and just how much he appreciated the book. So if we could have that quote... We should throw the epistle of James out of this school, for it doesn't amount to much. Martin Luther. We should throw the epistle of James out of this school, for it doesn't amount to much. So, uh, Martin Luther would be very pleased that we are spending 13 weeks going through James. So, my question to start today is, why did Luther dislike James so much? If he thought it should just be tossed, what did he have against it, and why are we spending so much time in it? <clears throat> we have to understand that we have, or had, two big problems. So before we get to what Luther's beef was, I want to talk about our two problems. So first off, problem number one, we are sin producers, Okay? Sin producers. We make sin. Anyone ever sinned? If your hand is not up, I'm going to back away from you. Um, so all of us produce sin, and we produce sin every day. And if you imagine us producing sin, it lands on this conveyor belt and lands in this massive pile. Okay? We have a massive sin problem that has created this huge debt. Can we pay this debt? Can we pay this debt? No. We cannot pay this debt. But who did pay this debt? Jesus. Je Man, you guys are good. Jesus paid this debt for us, right? Jesus took care of it, died on the cross. Debt is wiped out. Praise Jesus. Debt is gone. Our sin producing and all it has produced, gone. Pile done. Vanquished. Praise Jesus. Problem number two. We are sin producers. Anyone ever sinned? Hey. So even though our debt is gone, we're still producing sin, right? Even as believers in Jesus, even as disciples in Jesus, we still produce sin. We have this heart that's hard that wants what we want, okay? So what Jesus is doing is transforming us on the inside so that we sin less, okay? So you recognize the two problems? We had a huge debt problem, and then we just were still producing, even though he had taken care of it, okay? So these two problems are answered in theological terms by talking about justification and sanctification, okay? Justification is when Jesus took our sin, and took it away, just as if I'd never sinned. 
justification. Took care of it. It's gone. Praise Jesus. Sanctification, the process of transforming us from sin producers to people who produce fruit. God's Holy Spirit living in us, transforming us so that we don't produce sin anymore. Now that's a process, right? And maybe we produce a ton of sin, and as God transforms us, we produce less till we get to heaven and it's gone. Vanquished. I have a quote from Frank Viola that really puts those two terms and what heaven's going to be like in powerful terms. He says, in scripture, the word salvation means deliverance and includes three tenses. We were saved, justification, salvation from the penalty of sin. Our debt is paid. We are being saved, which is sanctification, salvation from the power of sin. It doesn't have as strong a grip on us anymore. We are being transformed. And then we will be saved, glorification, salvation from the presence of sin. So glorification for us hasn't happened yet. We're still here on earth. But those two, justification happened 2,000 years ago. Sanctification is happening in your lives now. Okay? Understanding that context, (coughs) what was... Luther's beef. What was he mad about? Why did he not like James? He decided one day, almost 500 years ago, did you guys know it's the 500th anniversary this October? 500th? 500 years ago, Martin Luther decided to nail his 95 theses on the door because many people were buying things called indulgences and they were said to help them be free from or pay for sin, or if you died without having confessed sin, you'd go right to heaven, you'd miss purgatory, all this stuff. Incredibly works-based. You gotta earn it. Pay money so that you can be saved. Luther read scripture and realized that's a lie. That is not true, and we need to reform it. So he took his big hammer and nailed the truth up on the wall, the door. Praise Jesus for that. So, Luther incredibly focused on justification because that's what the people of his day needed to hear. They were believing things that weren't true and Luther was setting the record straight. Justification needed to be taught. Today, hopefully, most of us understand this truth. Jesus died for us, sin is gone. Sometimes, though, I think we need, to do, we need to be reminded about sanctification, and James recognized that as well. So much of James' book is not focused on justification, it's focused on sanctification, both super important. So let's read our text for today, and we might figure out exactly why Luther had such a hard time, specifically with this section of Scripture. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. (coughs) What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. 
If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Luther did not like that verse. Did not like that verse. I'll read it again, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Luther had a hard time because James was clearly saying, we have got to have action along with our faith. And Luther said, no, it's faith alone. It's, it's not works, because he saw so many works going on around him that then was being taught wrongly. Instead, I think it's important to understand that what, <coughs> what James was trying to say was this quote. I think it's the next one. Yes, thanks. Man is justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. I'm going to read it again. Man is justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Faith has got to bloom and bear fruit. Faith has got to have actions and deeds that come from it. So let's talk about that. What is James really saying? <clears throat> He's calling us to be salt and light. You guys ever heard that? Salt and light, pretty common understanding of what we as believers are supposed to look like. We're supposed to be salt of the earth and the light, Jesus as the light of the world is supposed to shine through us. We're supposed to be a city on a hill. We're supposed to look different. How many of our lives really look different? How often do we say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but not look any different from the rest of the world? We're called to look different. Let's go to Matthew and read about being salt and light. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5. 13 to 16, says this. You are the salt of the earth, 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. <coughs> We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to be a light that shines, and that's supposed to be visible for those around us. Does anyone ever have a hard time doing what they know is right? You ever know that this is what God is calling me to do and you don't do it? Why do we not do it? We know it's what God is calling us to do. We know we're supposed to love and forgive our enemy. We know we're supposed to care for that person on the side of the road even though they sit there every day and it seems like they drive a nicer car than we do when they leave. We're supposed to love and serve the needy, the poor, the sick. And how often do we just push aside what we know God is calling us to do because we focus on our own lives. We get comfortable. We say, oh, I love Jesus and I go to church. I, I care for people, I pray. Well, good, praise God. Those are all good things. But are you living out your faith? Does your faith have legs? Does it have action connected to it? So why do we live this way sometimes? Why do Christians say they believe in Jesus, but nothing in their life looks that way? There's a term I want to teach you that many of you may have heard before. It's the term mental ascent. Have you ever heard the term mental ascent? Mental ascent means this. <clears throat> Intellectually accepting a word or statement as true, admiring it and agreeing with it, but not obeying it or living it out. Just kind of mentally agreeing, yeah, that's right, but it doesn't impact your life at all, okay? I have a story I want to share that might help us understand this a little bit. So there was a shepherd. There was a shepherd who needed to hire someone to help him out. He needed to hire another shepherd. So he put an ad in the paper, and this 10-year-old boy who needed some extra money decided that he would apply. So he sits down with the shepherd, and the shepherd says, all right, son, this is an important job. I got some questions for you before we hire you. What are you feeling about wolves? And the boy said, they're dangerous. They're scary. They tear stuff up. They eat, they eat sheep. And the shepherd said, good. We have a really strong policy in this herd about wolves. We don't want them around. Okay, so our policy is that whenever you see a wolf... We want our shepherds to yell and cry, wolf. Think you can do that? Well, yeah. I think that's a great policy. 
we, we need to protect the sheep. We, we need to yell, wolf, protect the sheep. I, yeah, that's a great policy. I don't see any reason why I couldn't do that. Yeah, it's a great plan, great plan. Shepherd said, all right, well, what do you think about sheep? They're dumb. Yes, they are, which is why we need good shepherds who can guard and protect them. You think you're up for that? Little boy said, I'm in. How much you pay? Two dollars. Yeah, I'm in. He gets hired. Little boy's working his first morning. Gets to about late afternoon, and the shepherd decides to go check on him. <clears throat> and he's walking, and he's kind of rising up the hill because the boy is in a valley below. And he starts to hear a lot of loud bleating. Me, 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 me. I've practiced that. <laughs> so, tons of sheep crying, and the shepherd's like, what is going on? So he gets to the top of the hill, crests the hill, and looks over, and there's a wolf tearing up the sheep, going through the herd like crazy. And he's like, he starts yelling, wolf, 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 and tons of people start coming running. And he looks, and he sees the little shepherd boy standing there, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, He's like, did you see the sheep? Yeah. We have a policy. Why, why aren't you getting any help? Well, wolves are dangerous. And I figured if I went in there, I might get hurt. And if I get hurt, I'm no use to you later on. So I thought the best interest was me to stay safe. You agreed that we had a good policy. Why, why did you do nothing about it? I was protecting myself. Yeah, you were. Fired him on the spot. That's the story of the boy who didn't cry wolf. <laughs> All right. I just made that whole thing up. Okay. <clears throat> so do you see the point being mental assent is agreeing with something but it not changing your life at all. That little boy knew what was right, and he agreed with it, but he was so focused on himself that nothing changed. I like to think about faith as a continuum. And before we look at that, I want to define one other term. So we've talked about mental ascent. I want to talk about what a dead faith is. So if we can have that definition up. Dead faith is mental assent, agreeing but not obeying or living out, that Jesus is Lord, but instead you remain devoted to someone else. If you think you know someone who might have a dead faith, it's probably because of this. They remain devoted to someone else. Think about demons. Do demons know that Jesus is Lord? Um, if you ask them, will they agree with you on that? They might not want to, but they have to. Because you ask, they have to speak the truth about that. You ever um, read stories in Acts about where um, there was this demon in this little girl? She would tell the future, and she would just walk around behind Paul, shouting that, Paul and this other dude, they know the truth. They're talking about the gospel. 
It was a demon in this girl speaking that truth. They have to speak the truth about that. They know the truth, but who are they devoted to? Satan. Who are we most often devoted to? Numero uno. We're totally devoted to ourselves. Those times when we go, ah, I should have devotions this morning, but you know what? Ryan and Kelly is on, and I want to see what celebrities they're talking to today. Right, Keith? <laughs> Love you, man. But we do stuff all the time where we are so totally selfish, and we think about only ourselves. We protect ourselves. We don't ever step out in scary times because we don't want to be in a tough spot. This, this could be really bad. This could be really scary. And so we just kind of say, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do what Jesus says later. That's oh, not a big deal. This is important too. And a lot of times it might be. But who are we devoted to? Let's look at that continuum. So for someone who has a dead faith, I have up there that they have zero good deeds. <coughs> That's not necessarily true. There are people who do not know Jesus who still do incredibly God-honoring things, okay? So just because you have a dead faith does not mean that you have no good deeds, okay? But you're gonna have a real low number because most of the time, you're only gonna be focused on yourselves. We want to grow from having a dead faith all the way to having a very active faith where God is just producing tons of good works out of us. And the question that I think helps us figure out how do we grow in that is the question of who are you devoted to? Who are you devoted to? Are you devoted to yourself first? Which is easy to do. Our world encourages us be independent. Think about yourself first. Make yourself and your family your top priority. That's not a bad thing. But we get so busy serving ourselves that we aren't able to see the different ways that God wants us to serve others. I have some pictures of people who lived what I would call fully devoted lives. You guys know who these people are? Top left corner, who's that? Mother Teresa sacrificed her whole life to love and serve the people that her community and culture said were worthless and untouchable. She gave her entire life to loving them and caring for them and being there for them when they died. Next picture, you guys know who all those five guys are? Anyone ever heard of them? Um, if you look in the middle, that's Jim Elliott. You ever heard of Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott and his four friends, I think this was in the 50s, 1950s, <clears throat> found out about a people group near Ecuador that were just had an incredibly high murder rate, like incredibly violent to their own people. And the five of them listening to the Holy Spirit, felt led to be missionaries to that group. 
they show up. They start planning ways to make contact, but still be safe. They flew a plane around, dropped supplies. They set up something where they showed this is where we're going to be. They set up camp. People from that tribe, I think it was a bunch of women, came, kind of met with them, spent maybe an hour with them, left. They were overjoyed. We're making inroads into this community. And then a, less than a day later, warriors came and killed all five of them. All five had guns. They could have protected themselves. They had decided that if we get attacked, we're going to shoot our guns in the air. Maybe it'll scare them, but we're going to fire into the air because we know where we're going and we know where they're going and we don't want to send them there. The tribesmen attacked, killed all five. Years later, Within a couple, I think, Jim Elliot's wife, Elizabeth, went and lived with that tribe and shared the gospel. And that tribe came to know Jesus. And one of their questions for Elizabeth was Your husband and his friends had guns. Why didn't they shoot at us? They could have. We were attacking them. Why didn't they shoot? And she got to share. They were so devoted to Jesus that a whole people group now has the opportunity to know who Jesus is. You guys know who Martin Luther is? Was he a perfect dude? He was not. Did he have everything right? We as Lutherans say yes. No, he did not have everything right. But did he stand up against lies and against the misuse of Scripture? He did. He was so devoted to God that he got excommunicated from his job. He took a stand of faith and said, this is what is right. Last picture, Martin Luther King Jr., he stood up for what was right too. He stood up for the lies that culture believed. These heroes of the faith were so devoted to Jesus that they heard him, listened, and obeyed, and because of their obedience, bore fruit. If you are looking at your life and you are afraid that you are closer to the spectrum of dead faith than alive faith, then the question I want to ask is, are you being obedient? And I know it's not easy. And I know it's God who needs to transform us and give us the desire and the hope to live that out. It's God who does the work in us, sanctification. But are you obeying because if you're not obeying in the little things, when the big stuff comes, it's going to be hard. Obey in the little things. Let's go to last verse, 2 John 1, 6. 
2 John 1, 6. It says this. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Let's read it again. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And as you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. May we be a people who love God so much that we walk in his commands, even the little ones. So when the rubber meets the road and God chooses to use us in brighter ways, we are prepared that we may be a people who love God so much that we choose to be obedient even when it's uncomfortable for us, that we choose to be obedient even when it's hard so that we be a people who don't have a dead faith, a mental ascent faith, but have a faith that is full and vibrant and alive so that God can use us to love the people around us, even the people we don't want to love. May we be that type of church where love pours out of this place. Amen. Amen.